This is Lizzie from the Westerverse. Welcome to my campaign diaries for the Guardians of Fahal. Uh, today we're going to be talking about episode 15, otherwise known as Getting an Education, which, you know, is appropriate because they're going to the Temple District and also to the school. So, uh, yeah, this, okay, uh, so this episode's a bit interesting because um, both, uh, uh, this is behind the scenes knowledge, we tend to record. Um, at least two episodes a um, a meeting. Out of a single session, we tend to get two episodes. And this one was technically three, just because of the um, stuff we had filmed out of game with Aaron, or with Sam and Josh. So, like, this was kind of a longer session, but, like, everyone was just kind of here for it. And um, it had been a big time off. Like, I think when we recorded this, it, we had been off for, like, a month and a half. And so everyone was just kind of, like, you know, ready to play. So some of the things that, uh, you know, happen is, like, it's it's a continuation of um, kind of a, a single day still. And it's it's interesting how sometimes with time moves in D and D where like you know you can have a session where like almost a week or two goes by because of traveling, um, and then there's other times where it's like a single day is like forever, um, and that's certainly what the last episode and then this one and then even the next one and then part of episode seventeen is all that happens in one day so it's a very long long day, um, but we're gonna we're gonna go into it. Um, I do like the fact that because when Sam is gone from a session, like, I hate when any of my players are gone, but when Sam is gone, it's kind of funny because, like, Rowan is, like, you know, who does Rowan connect himself to, like, you know, as another person? And uh, and how Una wanted to go learn how to do some weaving, and then it was like, a, oh, crap, what do we do with, like, who's going to babysit Rowan? You know, the seven-foot-tall tree man. And, and I think the reason for that is because Rowan, even though he's so tall and big and imposing, I mean, if you've seen art of him, he's kind of got, like, a friendly face. But, like, he he's kind of closer to a 12-year-old or, like, a, a younger child, you know, even though he's so big. Uh, and I remember uh, the reason we did that was Aaron and I were talking about, like, how, like, Rowan would grow fast to kind of keep up with Nora. Um, like, when he was born, uh, he, he was, like, a like, you know, about like a five-year-old and he could walk and talk and like interact, but then he kind of just kept growing and growing like at a more accelerated rate. But mentally we, uh, Aaron wanted to play him a little bit younger, even though he's like physically more developed. Uh, he's very childlike in some ways. So he, he just kind of needs somebody to go with him because he's a little, a little innocent and might get taken advantage of, or, you know, also because he's so strange looking, he might get attacked. So someone's always got to be with Rowan basically is how it feels. But, you know, we'll see if that stays that way forever um so yeah Hans and Franz and him go to the temple district which I kind of liked because um it's it's just fun to see him interact with somebody that's not Nora um and Hans and Franz has a little bit more of like a uh like he forgets that Rowan is is younger and doesn't really treat him as such he kind of just treats him like an equal which is good 
like mentally. Uh, he he doesn't treat him like he's like a twelve year old boy. He treats him like he's his age, who which is like twenty five. So it's just kind of a funny dynamic of them going together. Uh, but yeah. So they go to the temple district, and I knew that they were going to be going there because Andrew said he wanted to uh, try and go preach the word or anything, but he didn't really go into too much detail about what he was going to do or how he was going to approach it. So I was surprised that he actually went and kind of tried to get some sort of, like, permission. And uh, it it was kind of a nice thing because I got to bring back uh, Sister Triss, which is the... uh, cleric for the uh the goddess of death in my setting moru or not moru uh moria and her kind of not really having the ability to grant them permission but like i guess if you're gonna do it do it this way um and it's interesting because like it's a it's a good first attempt that he did um but honestly i think that it's a very uh it's a very straightforward approach. You know, I'm just going to kind of keep doing what I was doing before, but maybe a little bit more to spread the word of my God. But the problem is, is like, it's not really like, it's not, I mean, okay. So like, I want, I, I, I think that, hmm, that's going to be a bit of a tangent. So that's what you guys are here for. I think that it's super funny that like, uh, like, Josh and Andrew seem to kind of not know what to do, like, to actually make the, the tales well-known. And to me, there's not really one right answer other than you can't just tell people on the street and expect them to remember. Like, there has to be a different approach to it. And that's just kind of what they're doing. They're doing what they did before. Um, and I I just find it super funny And I'm like, well, I don't want to give them, like, you know, too many hints, but I also want them to be able to do something that will let them complete this before the campaign is over. So I might have to start throwing, like, other ideas their way. Um, Because, like, whether something becomes popular or not, there is a lot of chance left up to it, but, and there there can be a lot of, like, if, if you're a pub, if you're publishing something, there is a value in, like, you know, going out, posting things on social media and trying to build your audience. But um, as somebody who works in marketing, I know that that is only part of the battle. There's also a lot of, like, strategy that goes into it. So there's a lot of trying to get the right people to pay attention to your product um, or whatever you're selling. So I'm kind of curious, like, this is, there's no right answer, but, like, for me, some of the things that I thought that maybe they should do is try and see if they can get somebody who's more influential to care about their stories. Uh, I do think that a little bit with his talk with the philosophers outside the temple was definitely on the right track, because those people care about knowledge, but even, even then... Um, those are things that are like locked up into books, uh, and not everyone can read books. So it's almost like a how do you communicate a story to a large audience that isn't necessarily literate that can just go out and read books? You know, like you got to do something else. So I was like, one thing they could do is like if they could get like, um, like a play produced, or like if they could have somebody notable kind of perform it at like a festival, or like something like where it's featured at like a big event like the tapestry contest you know if they could have gotten somebody there to weave something 
um, and get note like that. That's a something. But you know, there's there's a couple different ways to do it, and, and just kind of like street hawking it like a like a sidewalk pastor isn't probably going to be the the way to go. But you know what? They're trying. They're trying, and I I don't want to tell them. I don't want to tell them no. I just know that they're going about this the slow way. So. Um, so the idea for, like, how the Temple of Drusea works, uh, I kind of just envisioned it being, like, they're a bunch of, uh, the people he's talking to are just, think of, like, a bunch of sophomore philosophy majors, uh, <laughs> which, like, they're just kind of sitting out on the steps, like, talking about whatever. They're talking about school, and they're talking about their homework stuff, and then this guy comes up and tries to start telling their stories, and so, like, they're kind of interested, because they're just genuinely curious people. Um, but, you know, overall, that's, that's, it could work, because, like, one of these students could write a paper on it, and their culture, and, you know, actually, um, essentially start trying to get, like, you know, it written down in the attention of some academics, um, but, you know, he, he didn't quite push on it too much, so it was a little bit like a, hey, you know, I'm kind of interested, maybe we could talk more, but, um, that's still an avenue that he could pursue. Um, I do love how <laughs> poor, poor Aaron trying to help his Rowan and hype him up, and he just rolls a natural one, and it's like, oh, I'm not good at drawing a crowd for this reason. Uh, one, one little thing I have a note on, so, uh, for these, these, uh, let's talk about the Temple of Drusea, because I, I know I talked a little bit about the goddess of knowledge herself in the past episode, but, um, when they had the festival. But the the thing that's interesting about, um, in Dungeons and Dragons, traditionally, there's a lot of canonical gods that, like, you know, exist. Like, the elves have their gods, the humans have their gods, and that's basically it. And I kind of like having more of the human approach to it, where, um... Gods can kind of be different in different regions, and there's a lot of de- like a lot of gods, especially in like the Greek pantheon and all pantheons that kind of came from other places. Um, so, like for instance, um, the goddess of the Temple of Knowledge is actually Drusea was not originally from the continent that she's being worshipped on right now. She was actually a goddess um, of a similar similar domains and also the stars in the eastern continent um and she kind of got adopted because after there was a big cataclysm where they lost a bunch of knowledge like a few several centuries ago like a thousand years ago they they kind of like uh that temple came over to try to like rebuild a lot of the knowledge that was lost during that great cataclysmic event so she got co-opted a little bit more into a goddess that still resembled her one from the east a little bit, but has been shifted a bit. Um, so they translate a lot of old texts, and they tend to not be, like, super... They're, they're pretty open-minded. Like, they, they are interested in knowledge and preserving things. Um, and so they have a lot of scholars. Um, and actually, that is... I did that because I really find it interesting that, like, in... Uh, Dark Ages and medieval history, like, a lot of times people think of, like, oh, the Dark Ages, like everything sucked. Like, everything, you know, there was no knowledge, there was no innovation, you know, people were just kind of living around in, like, crappy thatched huts and everything, and, you know, everything was awful. Um, but at the same time that the Dark Ages was going on in Europe, the same time the Islamic Empire was kind of getting started, and, like, the Golden Age of Islam started, where, like, um, there was so many, like, philosophers from, like, 
Persia or which is nowadays Iran and Iraq and also like there's in Syria and there's just like all these scholars who were huge nerds of a lot of the Greek philosophers that came from centuries, centuries before. And they literally had a bunch of their works copied over. And uh, that's how we have a lot of those older texts is partially because of them. And they, they just traveled and gathered a lot of information. And then they would write their own responses and philosophy to a lot of that original classical Greek um, philosophy. And that's, that's just really interesting. So I kind of modeled the Temple of Drisaea off of it. So the Temple of Drisaea uh, produces quite a few history books or uh, accounts of historical events. And normally when those were written, like in our age, they were recorded by people in the church or somebody like, uh, because those are the people that read and could like would make records of things. So um, in my world, it's pretty similar, but um, you have to also know that a lot of times these things are slanted. So most of the time, people from the Temple of Drisaea, if they write a book about a historical event, they try to be pretty like factual and unbiased about a lot of it, but their texts can also be very boring. <laughs> um, a lot of the really well-known history stuff in my world is stuff that was written by like a bard or like some sort of like court scribe or whatever and normally those ones are a lot more uh uh, let's let's say they're a little bit more slanted in their viewpoint. Um, and so it's kind of interesting because the books that the people bought way back at the beginning of the campaign, um, one of them is written by a philosopher from the uh, Temple of Drusea, and other ones are written by um, people that have affiliations with certain noble houses, so it probably changes, you know, like who wrote it. Um and there's, and that's kind of an interesting thing I liked at the idea of introducing in my world is like for the players, like just because they get a book written by somebody, they shouldn't assume everything in it is truth. Um, because it's like, who's right? Who's this person writing it? Um, and I don't think they're thinking about that because I don't think that's a thing normal, most DMs normally think about, but it's, it's so much more fun and you can kind of like create a little mystery thing in there of like asking the players like you know what really did happen because a lot of times like they shouldn't know a hundred percent all of the details of things and it's way more fun if they can kind of get a little bit of information that some of it might be true and some of it might be slanted and then they have to try to figure out like you know they can draw their own conjectures on that and then get a little bit pleasantly surprised or have their perception changed you know when they realize, oh, maybe this, we shouldn't trust this 100%. And I think the reason I'm doing that is probably because of in service to some plot point stuff uh, later. And I don't want to go too much more into that, but let's just say there's a couple things that historically have been recorded that are very slanted and probably don't have as accurate, of, they don't have as accurate of a account of what happened there. But, you know, those things have stuck more in pop culture history, if you will, in the world. So I, I'm laying that as a seed for them because I want them to really think about that. So anyway, that's your, that's your random history <laughs> lesson for this world that none of you are in, but, you know, I care about. Okay, so the temple stuff, somewhat promising. I'm curious to see if Andrew will go back to that ever and, like, talk to those guys and see if he can get more information. Um, I also find it interesting, none of them, 
have tried to go to the library to learn any information. Like, it's not impossible to get into the school's library. Um, but none of, no one's really interested in going there and maybe learning stuff. Okay, so let's talk about them going to the school. I was excited. I had prepared a bit for them to go to the academy for a while, and I had written up what it looks like. And it's kind of a, it's a newer building site. So the school itself is actually on an island in the city. Um, I believe at some point, especially if you listen to the podcast on uh, YouTube, and I have those little title cards of like what the section of the episode is. Sometimes I've posted a city map that's kind of out of date, and I really need to update it. But um, basically, the school is there's there's that smaller river that cuts through the city that's called the Sorella, and in the middle of that river there is a little island, a little. Uh, plop of land basically and um the school is on that and I I got the idea for that after going to Paris and how Notre Dame was on this little island in the um river that goes through Paris the the Seine I had to think or the Seine yeah the Seine that's how you say it the Seine and I just thought that was really cool so I I shamelessly ripped that out for my school so the school is on a island inside the Sorella River and there's other houses and like little markets kind of surrounding it um and it's it's been an old part of the city for a while and the keep used to be there um the school was built over the old keep um so basically uh i i had a lot of thought about what the school was like and it's it's a combination of like human architecture of the time and also elven architecture which are very different like the elves are very uh I don't know if you know what Art Nouveau is, but Art Nouveau, like, a lot of people know what Art Deco is, which is kind of, like, the fascination of, like, geometrical shapes. And when you look at things, like, from the 1920s, like, um, you see a lot of that style of, like, all these geometrical shapes and these line patterns, and that's Art Deco. And it's kind of really embracing, like, a, a style of, like, modernism. Uh, Art Nouveau was a style that predated Art Deco, and it was kind of because a lot of people were really frustrated and annoyed with how industrialized everything was becoming, like how much everything was focused on machines, and they kind of wanted to call back to nature in art. So during, like, if you search, like, Art Nouveau, you'll see a lot of um, paintings, posters, and, like, lamps and furniture that has a lot of nature in the architecture so like there'll be like vines carved into a chair or flowers or like patterns of glass will be arranged in like floral patterns um and that's what a lot of elven architecture is like they really like trying to keep things as close to nature as possible um for like just because that's part of like their culture reason like the fae are just like that they like things to be that way specifically the elf elven fae and goblins they tend to be like that dwarves have a little bit more of that industrial style but we haven't we won't worry about that for now so uh so yeah the school is very much like that there's a lot of stuff that looks like it's actually built out of like a tree and flowers are incorporated into the design and various plants and it's a whole thing and it's not just like trees and animals it's anything that is kind of occurring in nature like the elves are also uh the fae are really obsessed with uh astrology and the stars and when i say astrology i don't just mean like astronomy i do mean astrology where they read into what planet you're born under and like what the moon cycle was and everything they're really into it so you'll you'll find that in a lot of the style of the 
of the school. But um, I was so excited that they finally went there and I got to kind of explore some of this stuff. Um, but okay. So I feel like a lot of this episode has been mostly me talking about architecture and history and how my players can't figure out how to make their gods be well known. So so I'm going to go a little bit into like the fun little things that as a DM I've known for a while that they will figure out and um uh, just, just the hints, the hints that I leave there. And then there, there's like a moment of the players recognizing that maybe that there's something that they're not realizing about a situation. Um, and that's specifically when they go to the school and, uh, basically they, they want to visit Rhiannon and like, uh, they just are kind of like trying to remember like oh yeah she said just say her name well that seems kind of weird the school's really big and then basically uh that it's dropped that like yeah they do know who they're talking about that's a little weird you know it's just that's just a little weird that they just had one name and that was that was enough um and also her quarters i i i loved watching like andrew and and megan and josh and aaron's faces here when i said that because they i could see the calculations in their head like quarters like wait does everyone have quarters here like does that do all students like is it just that fancy um, they could have pried a little bit more, but, uh, I, I, I mean, it's, to me, I'm like, it's so obvious that she's somebody significantly important politically, and they're, it's, it's almost there, like, they're almost realizing it, but they're not, they're not quite there. Um, but yeah, overall, the school has a lot of high security as well, because there are a bunch of nobles, kids there that could be used as political hostages, so that's why they're getting escorted, that's why they're getting their weapons, like, peacebound, um, and yeah, about that, so peacebound doesn't really exist in 5th edition, but it was a spell that, uh, one of our friends had as a sorcerer in a Pathfinder game, and it was when we were in an area that, uh, we kind of, like, there was this setting, uh, the game I think is called, uh, in, I don't want to give spoilers in case people want to play this module, but in Pathfinder, there's basically, a, uh, one of the modules, you go to, like, Russia, and you're fighting, like, soldiers from, like, World War One era, and they all have, like, they all have rifles and stuff, and our sorcerer took peace bond, and then they couldn't draw their weapons, and it was kind of just amazing that she could take out, like, 30 to 40 soldiers with just one spell. Uh, actually, so, speaking of political hostages and the importance of that, um, so Aaron makes a throwaway joke about Padme, um, which, for those of you who don't know, like, um, in the prequels of Star Wars, um, Padme is basically the mother of Luke and Leia, um, and she's a, the queen and also then the senator of Naboo when, just a planet, um, and that's not important, but in the first movie, she kind of has, like, a body double who basically... Um, looks like she has a bunch of body doubles that look like her. Um, and actually, this isn't kind of that strange of a thing. Um, so there, like, Rhiannon does have a body double, and her name is Sophia, and she's her main lady in waiting and personal attendant. Um, and I, uh, ladies in waiting were usually very close confidants to a, uh, to uh the women of court like every everybody at court who was like a noble would have some ladies in waiting some would have multiple like if you were a queen or you were like 
a princess or a high lady, like a duchess, you would have multiple ladies-in-waiting, and there would be various levels of intimacy. Normally, um, they were chosen from uh, other noble families that you were close to because they were supposed to be like confidants, companions, and stuff like that. Uh, and so Fogia actually isn't a noble she she is more of like a servant and there are certainly those because somebody has to kind of do like the dirty work of like actually washing clothes and all that stuff but like um Sophia is specifically Rhiannon's uh, lady-in-waiting because she looks quite a bit like her um and the thing about that's so interesting about ladies-in-waiting and also like men in wait like historically men servants I can't think of like what what the equivalent is it for the male like you know it's not men in waiting um god my mind's blanking but them like a a a king's servants uh like his close men uh those are very interesting relationships because you have them as part of your group and traditionally you want to pick political allies that um you know it's an honor to be a person in waiting on this high powerful figure and then you kind of have their ear because you're with them like all the time and you're you usually can get deals for your family but there has to be a level of trustworthiness but of course this also means that like um, they're potential spies. So Rhiannon's is interesting because she has somebody that's not a noble. Um, and that could be because of wanting somebody who isn't necessarily going to rat her out, isn't constantly guarding her, you know, who's from the Iron Valley and basically sending word back to her father or somebody reporting to Lady Elaine. Like, she wants somebody that's a little bit more of, like, an independent person who's trustworthy. So... Um, and that's kind of a thing when you're a noble is you have to really think about like, who are you keeping around you? Who's going to see you in these moments of like, of privacy, you know, you got to make sure they're trustworthy and that, uh, because it's very likely that they could be trying to get something out of you. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting thing when you think about that with celebrities, like, you know, who's really your friend and who's kind of more of like your political friend that you don't really share everything with. You just keep around for good appearances, you know? These are things you gotta think about when you're a noble or somebody important. Um, so, uh, Rhiannon is studying, uh, basically things like how to be a good leader, you know, telegraphing that. <laughs> like, that's part of her, her thing is she's working on. Um, and I, I really think that at the time I could have gone into more detail about her, her room because there would have been a few things that I think um, were obvious that Hans and Franz would have noticed specifically some of, like, the tapestry things hanging up in her room. Like, you know, um, she technically has, like, um, it's like a banner of, uh, like, her, her family's, uh, sigil, like, hanging up in her room. And I, I should have narrated that, but I just kind of forgot about it at the time. And, um, they were, and they didn't really seem that interested, but I think if I would have actually described it, maybe it would have asked some questions, but you know, it's fine. It comes out later. It's not a big deal. Um, and they, uh, they did get a little bit of hint about like the tournament, the nobles personalities there, uh, her feelings about the gold crown. I really want to go into that, but I can't because it's going to come up more in a later episode. There's more details about it, but honestly it kind of, uh, it worked, you know, because it comes up with the the girls later when they visit with Rowan. And I think that's probably a better audience to hear that story. And that's going to be a interesting thing to go through. Um, okay. Um, I love them showing off 
their their magical spells. Obviously, Ronin is not kind of like leveling up as they are, but she she did recently get another spell. Um, because I, I was like, yeah, you know, she's going to school. She's learning things as a bard. Um, and she's missing her horse, which was super hilarious. Because I, I can... So, like, there's there's a bit of meta stuff going on. And I think um, Andrew didn't tell me this. Because he kind of... I he, he tends to not share information with what his character is planning. Unless he, uh, you know... Unless I ask him. And I think it's... I don't know. He's very guarded about... It's almost like he's afraid I'm going to use it against him in some bad way. Um, which I would never do that. I mean, I might do that, but but in a way that they would find fun. So, um, anyway, he... He... I think he was trying... He, he wants to talk to Rihanna and see if, like, he kind of, I think, is leaning into the idea of, like, maybe if I could get somebody more important to care about, like, my stories or my people, it would be useful. And he knows that she is a bard. And, but he didn't initially think about her. Megan did when he was talking to the Nightingale. Um, but I think he also, just as a player, is like, well, she's from the Iron Valley and I know she's a noble, so maybe... She's more, like, in tune with what the situation politically is there, and I could get information about home. I'm not 100% sure what he was thinking, like, because I, I uh, other than just talking to her, because I think he was trying to make small talk um, and be polite, and then I think he wanted to ask her about something or talk to her about, like, try to be like, hey, do you want to hear more about my people's stories? Because I have a task I need to get done. I'm not, but he was trying to be, like, diplomatic about it instead of just like, hey, I'm only coming to see you because I want something from you. Well, you know, so he's, he's, but he didn't really get to it because the way this, this episode needed to end and, um, and, you know, it was a big, like, I want to have this calm, like, we need to wrap this up and, uh, <laughs> And Aaron looked at me. So, okay. So with this moment, like, I wish I could do magic. Uh, as soon as he said that, and he was, I knew what he meant. Because I knew since session, um, episode 12, I think it is. Uh, no, 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 episode 11. So, like, months before this point, I had known that he w- had taken a level. Um, with his level, he, had, he was multi-classing. And I, he has had ma- the ability to do magic for a while now, like a few days in game. Actually, no, more than a few days. It'd be like a almost a week in game. And he hasn't realized he can do magic yet. So I talked to him about it. I'm like, okay, so for Rowan casting a spell for the first time, because he had picked out what his spells were, and you know, I was like, yeah, that works. That works. Um, I was like, do you want me to like? pick a moment or do you want to pick a moment? And he was like, I kind of want to be the one to pick the moment. I'm like, okay, well, so I can make sure I'm aware of what's happening. Like, you know, he kind of, we had like a signal basically and like a, a way of he was going to say it. So I was, I was looking for it. And as soon as he said, I wish I could do magic. And then he just like gave me like this, this side eye little smirk. And I'm like, oh my God, this is it. This is it. And it was like, <laughs> kind of bad because people were trying to be like side talking and I was just like, shh, shh, shh. like, shh, shh. it's a good place to end the session. Shut up. It's a good cliffhanger. And y'all are like talking about side stuff I don't care about. Like I got to give this moment for Aaron. And uh, basically everyone's like, Jesus, like, because they didn't know, they didn't know that this was about to be like a thing. Uh, 
And yeah, and then I got to lead it with like, you know, all of a sudden his his runes and then his hands lights up. What does it mean? We'll talk about more next episode. But yeah, thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you like this episode or have questions about it, leave a comment on social media or on Patreon. Um, you can also like and share it. It means a lot to us. Uh, and if you have a little bit of extra change every month and want to show us some love, you can support us on Patreon. We got a $1 tier and a $5 tier, and we're working on adding some more benefits as we speak for those different tiers. So, yeah, thanks for listening. Next time, we're going to talk about episode 16, which uh, I already know was going to be a super long episode, and I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. So, oh boy, I... We're going to get into it next time. So uh, I'll talk to you later, adventurers.